0: 7 Dressing Park, one at a time. I'm Brad. I'm Dave. And today we're here to discuss Minute 43 of the Lost World. Dave, how you been? I'm good,
1: I'm good. I'm just kind of relaxing and enjoying the summer.
0: Uh, lucky you. It's been raining pretty much non-stop here for the last 12 hours, so... <laughs> oh, really? Lots of water around. Mm. Before we get into Minute 43, um, last week we sort of talked a little bit about uh, Congo and uh, Crichton's earlier work there, um, this past week I managed to catch up with uh, Sphere and um, gave that bit of a read-through. And it's just interesting, um, some of the differences and some of the similarities between the uh, novel and the film. Um, I think this is the first one that I've actually read that sort of follows the film pretty closely, um, where... (coughs) A lot, of, a lot of Crichton's earlier work, or a lot of his film adaptions, were really cut and pasted and chopped up a lot. Yeah, it was. Um, kind of, yeah, Congo and the Lost World being two of the largest ones. <laughs> but, um, that were completely different things on screen. But also, the, uh, the novel concentrates a lot more on the, the crashed ship under the ocean as well, and not just the sphere itself.
1: Yeah, which I always thought was kind of nice, because it really didn't... I mean, I haven't read the book since I was in high school, so I can't remember if it was... what the nature of the origins of the sphere were, or if it was ever explained. Do you?
0: No, it, um... It's sort of the the uh, mathematician who is the uh, Samuel L. Jones character in the film, he, um... He hypothesises at the end of the novel that um, it's sort of it's a lot a lot, a lot of uh, like a lot of Crichton stuff. He sort of leaves it up to the reader at the end to make up their own mind. Um, he says because uh, the ship itself, the uh, USS Star Voyager, was uh, sent built and sent to go through a black hole. Um, it was pretty much a big, a big drone, um, self self piloted automated systems, and um, there was a crew of 20 on board, but that crew of 20 disappeared by the time uh, we got to it on the bottom of the ocean. But um, it went through the black hole and supposedly found this sphere and come back and come back at the wrong time. Um, They also hypothesised that um, that the ship could have been travelling for any amount of years in space, in time, and it could have been the crew that actually made it to... uh, to occupy themselves or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it's never really, it's never really confirmed to be alien. Um, in the uh, in the novel, also we do actually get to go inside and see what's inside it. Um, yeah. The the psychologist character at the end makes a fiz- makes a um, makes his own mind up and goes in because everyone else has been affected, so he's going in as well. And uh, it's really just him talking to his self-conscious. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah,
1: f- those kind of moments were kind of cut from the movie, though. Yeah, yep. And um a lot of the description of the actual spacecraft itself, because it was kind of described as being like an airplane-shaped thing, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, it's half a mile long, almost like a large cigar-shaped as well, with a big fin on the back, so mm-hmm. um, it's almost like an air- aircraft... Just a lot bigger. Uh,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah, and lead lined. It's got an outer shell, so it can sort of cope with um, radio radiation and that sort of thing as well.
1: Mhm. Um. Which was kind of what preserved it down there because it was so deep. Yeah. Actually, yeah. I mean, it wasn't that deep. Now It was um. It was in,
0: a fa-
1: the, in the American Star it crashed into? It
0: was a thousand feet. Um, yeah,
1: but I mean, in the Pacific Ocean, that's like
0: halfway down in some parts yeah 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 they actually say in the novel um it's lucky it crashed here and not any other place it was a relatively shallow part of the Pacific
2: yeah
0: but there's a lot more in the novel too there's a lot more exploring the cockpit the uh the black Mm -hmm. box if you will as well we see that uh it was launched in in 2045 but there's uh logs all the way up to 2056 um Mm-hmm. before they get to their unknown event, that um, which was set going back in time. A lot of this stuff, you don't even know the Sphere exists until um, Chapter 16 of mm-hmm. 60, um, whereas pretty much as soon as they get on the ship in the movie, they find the uh, cockpit and another team finds the Sphere straight away. Yeah. Um, but it's also... Yeah. As, it's uh, it's also funny. Crichton has his uh, little ways of sort of talking about technology at the day, and one of the they say at one point that the uh, the habitat has ten gigabytes of computer storage <laughs> on board. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you no, know, I
1: I have a uh, hard drive, an external hard drive that stores, stares, stores more memory.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah,
0: you It know? was one thing with Congo too when they'll discussing where technology is going and that sort of thing they um, <clears throat> were talking about how at the moment they had 16 megabyte flash cards or um, SD cards uh-huh. and we're hoping hoping to push it to 32 megabytes like stuff like that just
1: my, uh, my camera my
0: digital camera holds more <laughs> yeah yeah I've got a two gigabyte cards sitting right here. <laughs> And now, <laughs> now you can get 250 gigabytes, like, storage.
1: Uh-huh. Um,
0: but, yeah, in the, um... Because it, 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 it was the same sort of thing with, um... Congo's finding out when the film was made, or when the novel was made. It was written in 84, I believe. But it still takes place, like, early mm-hmm. 80s. Um,
1: Which is interesting, because reading it now, 20... 2045? That's what, 25, 25? 20... Eight
0: years from now? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's sort of another We're thing. Not
1: there. We're
0: not there at all. No. No. <laughs> no. And, uh, well, that's, that's the interesting thing, too, because they make a point, um, the lead shielding's about six inches thick, so they know the ship must weigh an incredible amount, um, and <laughs> that there must be some sort of new propulsion system to get it to get it moving. Um, that's again, it's not confirmed, but it's suggested that it must have been built in space and not actually built on Earth because you'd never get it to fly. Um, mm-hmm. but a lot of that stuff's just sort of skipped over. We don't see the engine room and all that because he hasn't, if you don't have the explanation to sort of let the reader know how that happens, you just leave it up to the imagination.
1: Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but
1: that does bring up a interesting point because the um, International Space Station is kind of built in space and it's just brought up there piece by piece. Yeah.
0: Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, because you'd never get a structure like that into orbit. Um, no. More so because of how fragile it is, too. Yeah. We've seen a couple of movies now where it blows up pretty easily, so... <laughs> <laughs> Also, the sphere in the novel is like a chrome ball, like a ball bearing, not the gold colour we see in the film. Um, Yeah, that was
1: uh, a change I kind of didn't like,
0: because it was
1: a chrome sphere in the novel, which I always kind of liked the idea of, it It was uh, like almost a mirrored surface, chrome-like surface, whereas whereas in the movie it's like this textured gold thing.
0: Yeah, it's the same... It's the same sort of goldy colour as what space material, um, like the, yeah. sp- the space insulation that's made of, so it sort of makes it look more yeah. like it's human-made. Um, even though, because CG being where it was at the time, they sort of made it ripple and um, that sort of stuff. The, uh, the showing reflections of the ship, but not reflections of the people standing in front of it was sort of cool. Mm-hmm.
2: But, um
0: but I'd, I'd, I'd um, always mixed up when the film came out, because I, I know Congo was 94, I think, after Jurassic Park. I thought Sphere was, like, 95, 96 straight after Congo, but it didn't come out till 98. No. Which is, yeah, a post-Jurassic, oh post-Lost World, which... Yeah. Um, I would have thought, <clears throat> after the Lost World and how much... Spielberg changed it, I would have thought by then Crichton would have been completely off the adaption train but um, I suppose if that money was coming in for it.
1: It's true. I mean, plus this movie had a lot of big name, act- big name actors. You had Samuel L. Jackson, you had Dustin Hoffman, Sharon Stone. All of, all of them were already made it big by then, you
0: know? Now going into the, uh, the film itself, that's one... One thing that I definitely noticed um, yes, the sort of, Goblin was semi-known for his work before Jurassic Park, but Sam Neill and Laura Dern weren't massive stars. Um, no. Even going into Lost World Lost World, Congo sort of, Laura Linney had done some stuff um, like the guide being been in a sitcom or something, and you've got uh, Ernie Hudson as well in Congo that mm. sort of a, a well-known actor, and, um, of course, um, and
1: Tim, Tim Curry. Tim Curry well known because of Rocky Horror Picture Show.
0: Yeah, yeah. But this would have to be probably the most star-studded cast in any of Crichton's adaptions. Yeah. Just off the top of my mind, like, later on with uh, Timeline and that, you sort of, you get, um, you get Billy Connolly and you get um, um, Paul Walker in there as well, but it's sort of, mm-hmm. again, the rest of it's not really... Anyone named, and he have got this massive. I'd, I'd love to see what the budget is. I should have brought IMDb up, but it's like we're going to really have a go at this Crichton novel and um, bring on some big name stars to do it. And they all, they all have great roles and they all do a great job. Sharon Stone. I I really know her from. Um, no, I don't really I'm, know her. I know her from Catwoman.
1: <laughs> I'm familiar with her. Through the movie Casino, Yep. and my dad absolutely adores the movie. Uh, it's got Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci, and it's about the uh, Chicago mob and their influence in the Las Vegas rackets. Okay. And so the Sharon Stone is like this rat hooker who gets hooked up with them and marries um, marries Robert De Niro.
0: Okay. Movie. Yep. And that's that's the thing. Like, even,
1: kind of,
0: like, yeah, even Hoffman. So sort I of don't really know him from much. I'm not. He's not really in films I'd watch. Um, uh, but I know. In,
1: I know from like movies like Hook. I loved him in Hook. He oh, was yeah his yep. character Captain Hook. And then of course um, Meet the Parent or no Meet the Fockers. Yeah, it's funny with him.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I've probably seen a couple of those uh, comedies.
1: Mrs. Robinson. Yep. It was a no, no. The graduate, the graduate. I always want to call him Mrs. Robertson.
0: because <laughs> of the song.
1: Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, he was in the graduate, the main character in there. And then Samuel Jackson. Of course, we got him from Jurassic Park and Deep Blue. No, Deep Blue. He was after this, wasn't it? That was two thousand
0: one. Yeah, yeah. But we'd had um, Pulp Fiction, of course, had come out. Um, yeah, because I
1: remember, I remember, um, I remember seeing. When I rented the DVD, it, that movie was part of the first advertisements for DVDs.
0: Yep, Yeah. Like Twister was the first one on DVD.
1: Is it? Yeah. I um, remember the uh, advertisements for the for the Lost World and Jurassic Park's uh, combo uh, collectors edition sets.
0: Yep, oh, we that's talked about earlier. Yeah, that was my first one. <laughs> yeah, but um. <laughs> It's it's great too because in the in the film we sort of get straight to the habitat within fifteen minutes. Um, it's really it's really compacted nicely at the start. Um, mm. Sort of this this novel was a bit hard to get bit harder to get through in Congo, just because of the dialogue, the dialogue and sort of the um, the little side trips we went on. Yeah.
1: Um, and a uh, lot of the... Some of the dialogue I listen to, though. Yeah. Like, um, when they're talking to quote unquote Jerry. Yep. And, um, in the novel, one thing that I was always disappointed that they got cut was one of my favorite parts of the novel, where they first go go down into the capsule, the, out, out of the submarine and into the capsule that they have underwater there. And they, because he because they explain that because oxygen is a corrosive gas, they use helium.
2: Hmm.
1: So before they get before they go down there and before they get the uh, they have to have these little strips with, like, a voice recorder on it because otherwise, of course, it's he- they're breathing helium, which humans can breathe, but it just makes their voice squeaky because it's lighter than oxygen. So, <laughs> Sharon's, no, no, um, Dustin Hoffman's character and I think it was Samuel L. Jackson's character go down there and they're laughing up a storm because their voices are getting progressively squeakier and squeakier.
0: Yeah, they, they go when they get to the uh, the dry dock or the when they get into the habitat. There's um, they got to uh, they go to a, into a, like a little box anyway, where they get pumped in with the helium to adapt to the new conditions. And uh,
1: yeah,
0: that's what happens. yeah, and again, it's just like one of those things in this film where dialogues just compacted into a couple of sentences. The the Colonel uh, yeah. in charge says, "You've got um." talking or breathing apparatus on the walls behind you put them on, you never see anyone put them on, you never see them ever again on the characters but in the novel it's explained that yeah, to talk properly um, in the helium yeah. atmosphere they've got to have these voice box things on their necks but
1: mm-hmm. um,
0: but it's not, not just that too, also later on there's um, they get a heap of dialogue squished uh, just to some back and forth banter whether or not they should open or not open the door to the ship um, Samuel Jackson brings it up do we actually want to open it up what's going to be in there um, and everything else and once we do get into the ship it's sort of it's weird one thing that's never brought up again is um, they find footprints in the in the dust and say so someone mm-hmm. else has already been here and it's never never mentioned never brought up again in the film um, no
1: another thing that um, I was kind of disappointed that they kind of they didn't cut all the way from the uh, movie, but they kind of did. Was the uh, giant squid, mm. and the and there was a like a major plot point in the novel that they had, because that the giant the giant squid attacks the, it attacks the like, capsules.
0: There's two major scenes because it's manifested by, um, by mm-hmm. one of the characters, and it sort of yeah it um does damage to the habitat. And um yeah. they need it to stop but Jerry's sort of being childish and didn't you like what I just done in that? Um and also the film underplays the uh the electrical defence they've got running through the outer shell how uh, it's in place, but whenever they use it it starts fires. And yeah. down down there in a helium rich environment the fires are a lot worse than what uh they normally are and sort of in the film it's sort of they just throw the lever and Shock it off, and then all of a sudden there's a fire. It's not really explained. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but I was always enthralled with the idea of this giant squid attack. Ever because I liked the. It was a TV movie uh, from Sci-Fi back when Sci-Fi was good. With the TV
2: <laughs>
0: movies, <laughs>
1: it, was starring, it starred William Peterson of CSI fame. Yep. And so it was. It was based on. The, it was based on the novel by Peter Benchley who who wrote jaws the novel yeah and it's about how a giant film is attacking this coastal town in the pacific northwest and so i always kind of like the idea of giant squids attacking because it's like that kraken story you know
0: yeah yeah and they don't really show a lot of it in the film like they could have there could have been some bad cg done here but uh they sort of showed resistance, if it was made now, you'd definitely see that squid on the outside, cg dop. um, maybe because of the way, their budget, and what they had to work with in the day, they didn't have the, uh, couldn't put the squid on the outside actually attacking, um, yeah, that's true, because most of the CG shots, yeah, most of the CG shots don't look too bad, um, for what's in here, but, uh, yeah, it could have been a lot worse, um, but I suppose one of the big, um, the big differences between the novel and the, the book, the movie is at the end, um, all three of them have got the powers. In the novel, um, Sharon Stone's character and Samuel Jackson's character sort of go nuts with it um, because they, yeah. they can't handle it. Where in the film, they sort of, as they're escaping, they all sort of get around it. Um, in the novel, Hoffman's character, Norman, sort of knows how to use use the power and that, but, um, it's not really used in the film, um, until they get back on the boat and they all all decide that they want to forget they ever Mm -hmm. seen the sphere. And then the last big one, I suppose, the difference is that, uh, in the the novel, the the ship blows up and the sphere supposedly goes with it, whereas in the movie, uh, the ship blows up and then the sphere takes off into space. (laughs)
1: Yeah. And I always thought at the end of the movie, um, There's, like, a dozen Navy ships all around this thing. Does none of them notice this?
0: Well, people are looking (laughs) up at it.
1: All rising out of the ocean and and rising into the sky, you know?
0: Yeah, the sailors looking up at it, um, as it goes. So, not everyone sees it, but a few will. Um, and also, um, I'm pretty sure it's mentioned in the novel about all the, uh, all the backup tapes and everything that are in the mini-sub, um, every 12 hours I had to reset the mini-sub so it wouldn't sort of lifeboat itself back to the surface with all the data and that they'd collected, so if something had gone wrong down there, there was at least some sort of record preserved. Um, that same mini-sub is what they took up to the surface, so presumably all those tapes and data's on board. Um, I don't know when they choose to, chose to forget, if uh, they also chose to wipe those tapes as well, But because up until, again, second uh, Crichton, work that's got a massive storm in the middle that disrupts everything. There's a big uh, tropical storm that hits the area and all the ships have to evacuate mm-hmm. and leave yeah. them down there alone. Um, up until that point, they're tethered to the surface. they got four on communications with the surface and uh, the colonel in charge is telling his people that what, they find, what they're finding. They found the ship, they found the sphere, and they want to stay and explore it more, so... But it's the the film's definitely made up to be more of a psychological thriller. Um it's not necessarily my cup of tea. I I was in it more for the uh the ship itself, which um is definitely covered a lot more in the novel, but uh, not so much in the film.
1: Yeah.
0: But um I I shared it around on social media that we're gonna do this and uh a lot a lot of responses and a lot of positive stuff for Sphere. Um also for Congo last week as well. Like a lot of people enjoyed both uh, novel and film, which is good to good to see. But um, if that's uh, all you got to bring up on Sea, David, we'll get into minute forty-three. Sure.
2: As we ended minute forty-two of the Lost World, Peter Ludlow was talking via video link to the InGen board of directors in San Diego, showing off two of their latest captures: Compies in a cage. As we start minute 43, Ludlow says in a moment we'll take you for a stroll through the camp and show you some of the more impressive specimens. At 42 minutes and one second, we cut to Nick and Sarah coming into the camp amongst some animal cages. The camera pans down around a large stegosaur cage. The animal inside, trapped. At 42 minutes and 26 seconds, Sarah unlocks the door and opens it slightly so the stegosaur can escape. At 42 minutes and 29 seconds we cut back to Peter Ludlow in his lecture saying you don't bring people halfway around the world to visit the zoo, you bring the zoo to them! And at San Diego is the perfect setting. At 42 minutes and 48 seconds we cut back to Nick and Sarah continuing to release animals including a baby Triceratops and a Pachycephalosaurus and as we end there at minute 43 they open the cage to the baby stegosaur. All the animals bellow loudly, released from their prison. And this ends minute 43 of the Lost World.
0: So we end in minute 42 of Ludlow crouching down beside the caged compies um, and saying that in a moment we'll take you for a stroll through the camp and you'll see some of our more impressive specimens. Um, it's a great little touch here having the Compy sort of nip at his finger. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Again, even though the compie's in a steel box, it's still acting.
1: Um, yeah.
0: Again, I'd have to suspect it's a rod puppet in there.
1: Oh yeah,
0: it is. Yes. Also, one thing on those here too, the cam- they got the camera mounted, or oh, it's on the guy's shoulder, but uh, they got the cables going into the computer. We're not quite wireless um, camera send and receive video here, but they're going to go for a stroll through the camp, so they're going to tow a big cable behind them. <laughs> I always thought that was I weird. Guess.
1: When we uh, see, when we look into the next minute here. I mean, I mean, into this minute, into the next couple seconds in this minute here, when Nick and Sarah come out of the brush, you can see that, they, uh, that the camp is not very far be- behind, behind them.
0: Yeah, well, that's it. We cut straight from uh, Ludlow, the the uh, tent here, too. Nick and Sarah coming on the scene now. Um, mm-hmm. This is the first thing we see of them in the film coming into the camp. Um but there's some deleted material, deleted production photos. Um, I don't. Was anything actually filmed of them sabotaging vehicles?
1: I believe it's filmed, but all we have is the production stills. Yeah. Of uh, them slipping the fuel lines on the Hummers and all the trucks and stuff. But that explains why they go launching up in the air when they do, uh, in, later in the next couple of minutes here.
0: Well, it also explains why we got to walk, um, or track to the communication center. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it is not, it's not shown here at all. Um, All we see is them releasing animals, but uh, I know in the original script, they're pretty much, Nick and Sarah, going around to every vehicle, cutting fuel lines. Um, Mm -hmm. Good luck doing that on the Unimogs, I'll just say, because uh, (laughs) they're a little bit more hardened to that sort of thing. Um, being a being a war vehicle or mi- uh, military vehicle, but um,
2: mm-hmm.
0: yeah, it's it's the conceit we've got to we've got to do here. Um, we need to be able to have everyone on foot to make them more vulnerable to uh, attack later on. So, and we don't we probably see a handful of vehicles during the roundup as well. So, um, apart from all this equipment, like we've got cages here, we've got um, Portable generators and floodlights and all mm. this all this other equipment that we didn't see get to the island. But, uh, yeah, as you said, when they come on the scene here, no sign of the laser fences, as we've discussed in previous minutes. Um,
2: yeah.
0: They just walk out of the jungle. Everyone's occupied. on uh, the top of the screen over at the tent, um, watching it again just before this record on the computer, you can actually see Ludlow's shadow in the tent with his hat on. <laughs> so... It must have been shot before he uh, <clears throat> before he started the 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 uh, video conference because he's got the hat off and on the compy cage during that. Um, but they they start running around uh, opening up cages. He got the stegosaur there. Good reveal of that um, yeah. animatronic standing love, in there. I,
1: yeah, I love how Nick, even though he's supposed to be uh, disgusted that they're that they're caging these graceful, beautiful animals. He can't help but to smile at yeah. these, at, at, at looking at these animals. You know, I mean, I mean, Sarah's looking at there, looking all concerned, and then you got Nick with a, this big shitting grin on his face. Yeah. You know.
0: Yep. Yeah, it's sort of it, that can be two things. It could be either. Um, well, I suppose mainly it's look. I'm um, looking how close I am to this big animal, because um, it looks the stegosaur looks at him and bellows. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Um, but I just, I just love how sort of a reverse shot to the reveal or earlier where we had the um, Stegos in the creek and you sort of had the camera uh, up at plate height or looking up at the plates as the animal walked past. We'll hear the cameras panning in past the plates, um, mm-hmm. this, this time behind the, behind the bars of the cage.
1: Yeah, um, you can see the mess... Uh going through the plates, uh, as you can see the shadows being cast onto the plates.
0: Yeah, yeah. The lights. Yeah, you got the floodlights sort of stro- mm-hmm. shining in through as well.
1: Yeah, um, it's almost kind of an interesting contrast that you got going between the natural when we have when we were looking at the Segosaurus earlier and the sun shining through the plates and the mists are kind of just shining, creating shadows coming off the plates. Then we have them here caged and you got the floodlights doing the same effect.
0: Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it, it revealed, it sort of asks that big question, how, when did they catch it? Um We we thought we'd seen the whole the whole hunt sort of going after mm-hmm. the packy and some of the other animals as well, but here you've got um you've got the stegosaur here, which we didn't see the hunters come across, it was only the gatherers, um, mm-hmm. yet, we've got one here, I don't, I don't think it's as big as the ones we've seen earlier, the cage doesn't look as big, um,
1: No, it's not, this is the Stan Winston Studios animatronic, that they actually built, for the original, um, the Redwood scene, Yep. And they brought it to the Redwoods, as we show, showed, and talked about earlier, but, um, they never actually got to use it there as, because Spielberg decided just to go full CGI,
0: mm.
1: so they stuck it in this scene instead.
0: Yeah, well, a lot of the um, a lot of the used and unused animatronics turn up in this uh, camp scene because um, we got the stegosaur.
1: Mm-hmm. But... And the color of course the uh, baby triceratops animatronic that was supposed to be in the first film but never got used.
0: Yeah, I wonder if that That's was so um, oh, I wonder if that was uh. Something left behind at Stanwick Studios, or if they just decide to make that for the film. Because we know no,
1: there's definitely something left behind because there's pictures for it in the original making of for the first movie of uh, them building that animatronic and then talking about how they had to scrap it.
0: Yeah, so I wonder if they just reskinned it for the Lost World of like the animatronic was still still there in storage or something.
1: Mm-hmm. Hmm. I don't know i always assumed that it was just the original skin,
0: yeah, so
1: that's a
0: good point well we know we know how like the sh- the shelf life of the uh latex skin has um, it just depends how they stored I suppose, but um yeah they're running they're running around between between the cages, letting the animals go. It's growing up on the farm if you hear a group of animals start to bellow out, you know something's up um. Especially cows. Like if you get one cow that gets out of where the other cows are, every other cow mm-hmm. bellows and wants to get out, get out the gate as well. Um, <laughs> and there's no you got you got Ludlow talking in the tent sort of Aww. about, and we'll cut back to there in a minute. But um, it's you got all the hunters kneeling out in front of the tent, and we see they're not that far away yet. You got all these animals bellowing, mm-hmm. and no one no one pays attention to it at all.
1: That, that reminds me of a funny story. When I was in the Redwoods, um, the inn that we were staying at was right outside a cow farm. And so one day I just decided, I don't know why, to roll up next to and pull over to the side of the cows where the cows were and start yelling out the car window, Moo!
0: <laughs>
1: and so the cows come stampeding towards me. And then I'm like, oh, crap, I'm, I got I to get out of here. <laughs>
0: Uh, They're quite inquisitive. (laughs)
1: Yeah.
0: Often, yeah, you can pull up beside them in a paddock and sort of call out to them and they'll come running.
2: Um, Yeah.
0: yeah. But um, we cut back to the command tent here and uh, we get Ludlow continuing his little speech from the previous minute. Uh, You don't bring Mm -hmm. people halfway around the world to visit the zoo, you bring the zoo to them. San Diego's the perfect setting. People already associate our beautiful city with animal attractions. San Diego Zoo, SeaWorld... And the San Diego Chargers now. San Diego Chargers, I imagine, is a football team. Yeah. So
1: how would that? I don't know why you mentioned that. Yeah,
0: <laughs> it's being a, an animal attraction. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> I wonder if that's supposed to be a joke or something, and it just kind of falls flat.
0: Yeah, it was yeah something. The writer David Kep or something. A little in joke there. Because um, it'd be like it be like saying the Miami Dolphins just because they got the dolphin as a mascot. Unless, yeah. unless there's some sort of mascot for them that is an actual animal, um, I think
1: it's a ram.
0: Okay, that's that's even less impressive. <laughs> Sorry to the older San Diego Chargers fans. Um, but actually, no,
1: it's a lightning bolt.
0: Oh, okay, <laughs> that's definitely not an animal. <laughs>
1: um, I always thought they meant Chargers and Rams. Huh? They're not in our division uh, that plays Chicago, so. We don't play them.
0: Yeah. So I'm not familiar with them. No, no it makes sense, though. Um, charges, I'd think, would be Rams or, yeah. yeah. Anyway, um... It's... One one thing here that's interesting, you don't bring people halfway around the world to visit the zoo. Well, if you... Wherever you build it, you're going to have to bring, bring people halfway around the world to visit it. Unless, mm-hmm. unless you sort of go global and make several different ones. But, uh... Yeah, even even moving it to San Diego, you're still gonna have people traveling from all around the world to get to San Diego to see it.
1: Um, well, we know that from the first movie, they had a um, slide in the luncheon scene that said Jurassic Park Europe.
0: Yeah, yeah. So we
1: know that they were probably still hinging on an expansion to other parts of the world. In the novel, there was even mention of a Jurassic Park Japan.
0: Well, yeah, As with Europe. yeah with the uh, with the um japanese investors that you'd think a, a jurassic park japan would be next on the list um, yeah just so those investors and family and everything else they and had and, something local
1: yeah even in the novel uh hammond mentions that the japanese love their zoos so of course that's like their big that's going to be their big area of interest after jurassic park isla nublar
0: yeah yep um and it's also, it's funny, he's walking around the table and David last minute you thought he was on the coffee here. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: But he's still he's still slurring his words and it's a bit of an effort to walk around that table. He's sort of <laughs> stumbling a little bit. I'm just waiting <laughs> for him to Benny Hill and fall over through the model or something.
1: Yeah, really. And that is a really good model. There's, I think, a conceptual model that they just put into the scene. Yeah. Because there's pictures of, there's pictures of it with... Uh, It was built by the same guy who built the conceptual model for the Worker Village. Oh, wow. And that we'll get to.
0: Yeah, well, we get to see a lot more of it the next minute. I've got some
2: Mm -hmm.
0: things to bring up about it. But um, we cut back to uh, Nick and Sarah releasing animals. Um, uh, Noise issue, I said before... Uh, they got the yeah baby. We see the baby Stego, um, baby Triceratops, and the uh, animatronic for the Pachycephalosaurus is all here. Um, and we we get to the the big one, the Triceratops,
1: uh-huh.
0: and uh, and that's where minute forty four ends. But um, this whole time, you got this nice sort of jungle drum beat going in the background, which I just love.
2: Yeah,
0: it sort of builds up the suspense quite nicely. Uh,
1: mm-hmm. And something I really like about that they have with the triceratops head here is that when it exhales, it kind of uh, goes back to the raptors in the first movie when they exhale onto the glass and fog up the glass. Yeah. Because when the triceratops exhales, there's this huge cloud of, um, well, yeah, mist that gets kicked up uh, by the animal.
0: Yeah, it's breath, yeah. Or condensation, you'd say. But, mm-hmm. Um yeah, and it just it's just one of those little things that adds to the the real, like, the animal's alive. Um, uh uh-huh. And it's a great little touch.
1: Well, that also hints to the idea that, because, I mean, this fog exists because it's kind of chilly at night. When On a tropical island, because the sun's beating down all the time, it gets a little chilly uh, at night. Yeah. Because the ocean breeze... Uh, flows on into the island and cools it off yep and that actually happens in the redwoods too though is that the morning mists are really heavy because the cool air coming off the ocean is still prevalent on the coastline but the sun is starting to heat everything up
0: yeah yeah and if you've got a like a thick forest with a heavy cam- canopy you're going to have um different air temperatures at ground yeah. level and above the canopy as well um
1: Oh, definitely. When I was in the Redwoods, um, it was like midday around 11.30, 12 o'clock. And I was, we were walking past some trees, and I noticed that I could see my breath in, only in the shadow of the tree. Yep. Because <laughs> these trees are so wide that they create such a shadow that um, everything underneath that shadow stays cooler than the rest of the area where the sun uh, penetrates it.
0: Yeah. Well, that's when you start getting a lot of your mosses and that grow on the backside, too, like the dark side that mm-hmm. never sees the sun. Yeah. All right. After, there's anything else you want to bring up for 43, Dave? I think we're good. Rightio. All right, guys. Let's get the hell out of here. Contact details are on the website, thelostworldminute.com. Email feedback to gmail.com, Facebook The Lost World Minutes. Twitter at thelostworldminutes and Instagram The Lost World Minutes. Easy to remember. Yeah, yep, yeah, very easy to remember. Right. <laughs> uh, David, thank you for joining me for this recording. You're welcome. And uh, we'll be back. I've been Brad. I'm Dave. And uh, we'll talk to you all later.
1: Goodbye. Talk to you later.
0: Bye. It is absolutely
1: imperative